I'm sure you have seen or heard the slogan, No Fear. It conjures up an image of a daredevil who is afraid of no one, and who is not afraid to try anything. But is this actually a healthy way to live? Are there some things you should fear? Is there someone that deserves to be feared? I'm Mary Wurtson, and this is Truth Encounter, a program designed to help you open the Bible for yourself and get to know intimately the biblical Christ. We are presently working our way through one of the toughest books in the Bible, the book of Revelation. In chapter 15, the Apostle John gives us another vision of heaven and the powerful judgment that God is going to pour out against those who arrogantly choose to reject his sovereignty over the earth. Our study leader, Dave Wurtson, introduces our study on chapter 15 with some insights into how athletes, like snowboarders, actually do learn to do those death-defying tricks. Dave was raised near the Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid, New York. Let's see what we can learn from these Olympic athletes about a healthy respect for danger and ultimately think about a healthy fear of the Lord. To me, just getting on a snowboard is taking my life in my own hands and I catch an edge both backwards and forwards. I've never fallen so hard in my life in trying to master this board. And to watch both these men and women, these fellas and girls, going down the slope and they actually come off these rises. And I watch one girl, she does a, a, like a back flip and, and then hits this real steep incline and just, you know, just hits that thing and goes right on. And I just couldn't believe it. Some of these other guys would jump into the pipe just like they do on a skateboard. They're doing all that stuff on a snowboard now, which is quite a bit bigger than a skateboard. And they jump into these pipes. They'll go up and do double backflips and everything else. And I noticed that almost every one of them wore on the back of their shirt, no fear. It's one of the major things. If you're in the X Games, if you're in extreme kinds of games, no fear is a major thing. But I've got news for you. If I were to go out on a skateboard and put no fear on my back, and I were to go off a ride and say, I saw them do it on TV, and I'm going to do it, and I jumped way up in the air and flipped backwards, my no fear slogan would be deadly. Because I would land right on my head and probably break my neck, and you would have a funeral service saying, good old Dave, we remember some of those days. No fear is a slogan that is used in athletics. But the truth of the matter is that even in those extreme events, those young people really do have fear. In fact, I've seen them practicing up at Lake Placid. You see, they don't just go up on a mountain, get on a snowboard and say, man, I saw some people do some flips and I'm going to do some flips and wham. You know, they just take off and they're doing all that stuff. What they do at Lake Placid is they start out in the summertime and they get up in these pipelines. They have a big pool in the middle of the thing and they begin by actually doing a lot of those things where you land in the nice soft water of a gigantic swimming pool and you can go up to Lake Placid and watch them sliding down in this straw that's real slippery like snow and they'll do all of those flips and everything. It really even begins before that. They first of all go into a gymnasium and they have a gymnastics coach that teaches them all those moves and they actually go through all those gymnastics routines. You see, why do they do that? Why It looks so easy when they do it on the mountain, but it's because they respect this is a difficult trick. This is a dangerous trick. Those that actually learn to master those things have a deep respect 
for what's involved in that. And so they might declare no fear in the back of their shirt, ensuring competition. They kind of let it all hang out. But the truth of the matter is, they have a lot of respect for the danger of their sport. No fear might be a catchy phrase to sell athletic equipment. It might be a challenge for an athlete. But if you write no fear over your life, which many people today are, it can be one of the most deadly slogans that you can ever have in your life. Because as you face real life, there's some things that you need to really, really be afraid of. It needs to hold you back. And what we read in the book of Revelation chapter 15, you could, you could put a note over this chapter. The theme of this chapter is no fear. No fear before their eyes. And what the Lord's going to begin to do is to work with a group of people who don't have any reverence for God. They're not awed. They don't stand in awe of him. They don't sing. Or if they do sing, it doesn't really mean anything to them. And God, throughout the book of Revelation, has been reaching out to these people. He's been trying to get their attention. He's been trying to help them to understand how serious it is to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, John the Apostle's goal for everybody on planet Earth, and it comes through very clearly, is God wants to move people who have no reverence for him, no fear of him, no respect for him. The Apostle John wants to be used as a witness to bring them to faith in God and commitment to him. But a lot of the people don't respond. And what is God going to do about it? In other words, some of you have unbelieving friends that curse God. When those words come into their minds and the devil brings those words into our heart and we go to damn God and we go to curse him, we go to express that animosity towards God, throughout the world, wickedness causes people to, that's where they are. That's where they live. And you might ask yourself as a, as a believer who really loves Jesus, will God ever do anything about this? Will God ever handle that kind of opposition? And Revelation chapter 15 is an answer. What we have in verses 1 through 3, so you can kind of get the structure of this chapter, he begins by giving us a vision of the seven final plagues. It's the completion of God's wrath. We go up into heaven again, just like we went up into heaven in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. Whenever John is getting ready to introduce a major new thrust, in God's invasion of planet Earth, he always gives us a heavenly perspective first, and then he brings us down to Earth. Verses 1 through 3, John gets another great sign, another great vision of what God is doing in the world. And he introduces us to the completion of God's wrath. John assures us this is going to be God's final word. Then in the central part, he introduces us, he gives us a vision of what's called the Song of Moses and the Lamb. And we see a group of people just like the children of Israel after they passed through the Red Sea and they were delivered from Pharaoh and Pharaoh's armies were drowned in the sea. John the Apostle sees a future day at the culmination of the tribulation period where there's going to be a new song. It's going to be like the Old Testament song in Exodus 15, only this time it's going to be the song to the Lamb of God who's conquered all the pharaohs, the ultimate pharaoh that attacked believers during the tribulation period. Then the chapter closes with the final court of justice, the certainty of God's wrath. So you can kind of put the chapter together with the completion of God's wrath, the power and justice of God's wrath, and the certainty of God's wrath. So that'll kind of bring this chapter together. Let's look at it and see how John begins. He says, I saw in heaven, chapter 15, verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. 
John the Apostle is one of those inspired men who actually, in truth, was able to look into the heaven. And God took away the curtain and enabled John to see things from a heavenly perspective. He sees a great and marvelous sign. In chapter 12, we were introduced to a great sign. We saw a pregnant woman that was seeking to give birth to a male child. That was the first great sign in this section of the book of Revelation that John saw. Remember what that represented? The pregnant woman was the promised line that would eventually bring Jesus, the promised Messiah, into the world. And in chapter 12, that was the first great sign. This incredible messianic promise that's going to be brought into the world and that happened in what we celebrated Christmas when Jesus was born. Revelation chapter 12 then goes on and presents another second great sign, and that's the great red dragon the great opponent to the messianic promise. And so we were able to put together the whole conflict of the Bible that from Genesis chapter 3, when God promised that Eve would give birth to a child, eventually a man-child, a great deliverer would come, we learned that all the way from that promise, Satan, the one that deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden, is after that male child, seeking to snuff out and destroy that male child. So that's the second great sign. Now we're introduced to the third great sign because we've been living down through the centuries where it looks like apparently good people, people that believe in Jesus, people that are called according to his name, people that are excited about him, they get mowed down. They are abused. They are hurt. At Wednesday night prayer time, we read a letter from a girl that's in Indonesia and she had been a vacationing in one of the other islands As she was getting ready to go back home with her husband to their place of work, she could not return to Bali. She could not return to the the place where they lived in Indonesia. Why? Because horrible riots had broken out. And it was incredible to read this eyewitness report. She shared how finally they were able to get back to another section of Bali. They gathered with a group of believers and they worshipped in the service. And yet as they shared, the pastor got up and said, this is probably the last meeting of this fellowship together because a lot of us are going to have to scatter to other parts. And the pastor went on to describe that there were seven of their church family that had been martyred. They shared how about 12 of their churches had been burned to the ground. Some of the walls had been left standing and they wrote in blood, Pastor, we will drink your blood. And this group was meeting, and this, and this eyewitness shared the tears and the incredible power of the worship. She went on to share that, you might have heard in the news, that the riots kind of broke out, and it was kind of a clash between Islamic and cultural Christians, and it kind of got out of hand, and that's what caused it all. This eyewitness report shared how that's not true at all. They had come to a Sunday service like this. The day before the horrible massacres broke out, Islamic guerrillas came into their worship services and gave them a letter saying, you need to escape because we are going to do this. The Christians thought it was a joke. They just thought it was a terrible, terrible prank. But it wasn't. Because the next day when the fighting broke out, with automatic weapons and and all kinds of, of paraphernalia, they attacked the Christians in that area. So the kind of persecution that we're reading about in the book of Revelation, I want you to understand that there's going to be a great day of tribulation that's coming. You're part of a family of believers who experiences that kind of persecution today. 
And if we were speaking to those Indonesian believers, one of the big questions they would ask is, does this never end? Sure, we want people to come to Christ. We want people to respond to his love. But if they don't respond, if they don't turn to God, does it just keep going on and on like this? To to those that do evil, those that murder violently, those that burn down churches, does that just go on forever and ever and ever without any justice? A lot of you ask that question. Often in our life now, it looks like God arrives too late. It looks like he just doesn't have enough power. And one of the things that you can be tempted to do is maybe this thing isn't true. The book of Revelation is a, is a vision from God that tells you how things are ultimately going to end. And Revelation 15 is an introduction to the final time during the tribulation period where God the Father says, I've had enough. And what John introduces here, he sees a vision, this great and awesome vision, and he sees seven messengers of God, seven angels, and they have the seven last plagues. These plagues are judgments from God. It says because the wrath with them, the wrath of God is complete. In our modern politically correct society, we don't believe that God has any wrath. We don't believe that God ever gets angry. Now, a lot of the reason we believe it is because our own anger, our own wrath is usually very destructive. Most of us get mad over the wrong things. Most of us get angry very quick. Most of us kind of flash up. In fact, a lot of you could stand up now and share. One of the things that the Holy Spirit really needs to work in my heart about is my anger. Man, I just explode. I've got a bad temper and I need the Holy Spirit to deal with that because it explodes on all kinds of innocent victims. So when we read about God's wrath, we often automatically jump to kind of this angry, vindictive, kind of like an old, angry grandfather or a father that just loses it all the time. And we have that idea, that's an old idea of God, and so we want to get rid of that. Well, often, you know, that's a misconception of the way God really is. I want to share something about God's wrath. God is incredibly patient, much more patient than I am. I know that the Lord is very, very patient. Because there's been tons of situations where I would have said with Hans, zap him, Lord. I'm kind of like John the Apostle with his brother saying, Lord, do you want us at this time to call fire down from heaven? How many of you have ever felt like doing that? Do you want me at this time to call fire down from heaven? I want you to know something about God's wrath. It's very, very patient. He goes a long time. In fact, that's why we're still here today. That's why the events of the tribulation period haven't been ushered in. It's why the second coming of Christ hasn't come, because God is very, very patient. One of the great dangers, though, about God's patience and his grace is that you can assume that you can get away with things. You can assume that I can just keep right on sinning, I can keep right on disobeying, I've got all kinds of evidence that nothing happens when I do so. For example, you go out and sin, you go out and do something wrong, and, and you don't get zapped with lightning, you know, you don't feel, you don't hear some terrible, angry voice that just calls you to account. And so you begin to feel, man, I can get away with evil, I can get away with doing what's wrong. And you need to hear what I'm telling you today. It's a very foolish thing to think that because God is patient with me, that he's gracious with me, that he will not execute discipline against me if I'm a child of God. And if we don't know Jesus as our Savior, if we've never invited him into our life, and we go through a lifetime of rejecting him, of cursing him, of not having any time for him, don't you think for a minute 
that there's not divine wrath. You see, God's wrath is not like our wrath. It's not the explosion. It's not the explosion over our petty grievances. But it is a tremendous, a powerful response to the deadliness of sin. I want to ask you a question. Do you really believe that sin will destroy you? Do you really believe that sin will hurt you? Do you really believe that sin will will just snuff out your life? See, one of the biggest lies Satan wants to tell you is you can get away with it. Sin won't hurt you. In fact, sin will make you happy. Sin will give you great pleasure. And you can just quickly just ask God to forgive you and then everything will be great and you can just go right on and sin again. The book of Revelation has John the Apostle saying, no, you can't. He's saying that sin is a deadly thing. It's a horrible thing. It destroys families. It destroys children's lives. It produces death. I had one of my brothers in Christ eating breakfast with with him. He said, you know, one of the things I've really learned is sin really, really is. The wage of the sin really is death. And he said, you know, the wages aren't just something way out there. The wages of sin start right now. Immorality, for example. Immorality causes us to have sex before we're married, before we have that deep covenant relationship. It causes us to have sex with the wrong person. It often produces babies. And then what do we do with those babies? Millions of those babies are destroyed throughout our society. The wages of sin is not just death way out there. And often innocent people are terribly hurt. They lose everything over it. Don't you think for a minute that God is not going to vindicate that? That he's not going to make it right. And that's what this chapter is about. God the Father is saying, I am, in the end, going to execute my final place. And this is going to be a time where my wrath is poured forth. And I'm going to discipline those who countered my will and countered my decrees. And as his children today, we need to understand that that's part of our daddy. Part of what we need to believe. So don't take his wrath, his, his patience and not executing his wrath as, as a license to just go right on and disobey him. Because he is a real lion. He is a real tiger. In the end, his anger burns very, very slow. But when it comes, it's strong and it will purge his children. And with unbelievers, it's going to be a final wrath. If an unbeliever has never responded to Jesus, never believed in him, they all think, you know, the modern popular correct thing today is to say, well, everybody ends up in light and everybody ends happy forevermore no matter what you believe. Read the book of Revelation. Revelation, which is the revelation of what's really going to happen when people die, doesn't present that kind of a picture. It presents the picture of people that have put their fist in God's face and people that have have broken all of his commandments and people that don't have a love relationship with him, that never responded to his son, that never really had the gospel mean anything to them. And they stayed in that hardened state of prideful rebellion. It says that the seven plagues are going to attack and it's going to be the completion of God's wrath. He goes on and says this, I saw what looked like the sea of glass mixed with fire. In the heavenly scene, in chapter 4, we saw this large reflecting pool in the courtroom of heaven because God's very dramatic. And like, for example, at the Washington Monument, you have this beautiful reflecting pool. And so when you're in Washington, D.C., you can see the glory of our country as the Washington Monument is reflected in the reflecting pool. 
This is John's artistic representation of the glory of God. And what he pictures is not the Washington Monument, but he pictures thousands upon thousands of believers, those that came out of the tribulation, those who when Antichrist said, take my mark, take my number, these believers in the Messiah said no. They had joined the message of the 144,000. These believers are saying, I'm not going to submit to Antichrist no matter what he did, what he does to me. And a lot of them lost their life. And John now sees them in heavenly glory standing beside this crystalline heavenly scene. So the reflection in the sea is not of some Washington monument, but it's of all these faithful believers. These are some of your brothers and sisters. They're going to live in a future time. Some of those Indonesian believers that were killed, they're around the throne today receiving this kind of acclaim, receiving this kind of heavenly awe, this kind of comfort that's going to come. And John the Apostle wants to assure the believers that he was speaking to that the wrath of God in the end was going to deal with their enemies that attacked them so vehemently and destroyed their lives. And if those enemies don't respond to the gospel of Christ, they are going to face the final wrath of God. There will be justice and vindication. This time, the sea of glass is mixed with fire. Fire in the book of Revelation represents what I've been talking about, this fiery, judging, powerful movement of God to bring about justice for his cause. So the the crystalline sea is mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea are those who have been victorious over the beast. That's the Antichrist. And over his image, the false prophet tried to get people to bow before in worshiping the Antichrist. And over the number of his name. Remember, we're introduced to all that in chapter 13. It says, now this heavenly exalted throng held harps given them by God. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So what we have here is the introduction of the seven plagues. We have the angels that are going to carry those plagues. And we're introduced, first of all, to this heavenly song of victory. Now let's look at it. This sounds just exactly like the celebration that the children of Israel had when they had just come through the Red Sea and Pharaoh had just been destroyed in Exodus chapter 15. And Miriam got all the women in Israel. They all grabbed their tambourines. They all gathered their noisemakers. And they began to powerfully dance and pray to the Lord. It was a dance of victory. In the New Testament, we now have the new exodus. What John is describing here is that these faithful believers, just as certainly as the children of Israel went through the Red Sea on dry land, they've now arrived destined for the promised land. The new exodus in the New Testament is even better. Because in the old exodus, they went into the wilderness and then they wandered around for 40 years and many of them were disobedient. Many of them didn't get get to enter into the land of promise. But this new vision of a New Testament exodus, John sees the children that were committed to Christ during the tribulation period crossing not the Red Sea, but the crystalline sea which represents the barrier before the throne of God. And what has happened now is they've walked over that sea. They're now in the presence of God. Symbolically, what is John saying? These martyred believers are home. They're safe. They're in the presence of God. In other words, they don't have to wander around in the wilderness somewhere. So when you think about dying as a believer... I don't want you to think that the moment you die, you're going to be in some nebulous kind of a place, maybe a purging kind of a place, something that could kind of handle all the things that Jesus wasn't able to handle in this life will kind of get your act together then. No, if you've received Christ into your heart, then just like these tribulation saints, you're going to be present with the Lord. 
That's the incredible promise we have in Christ. And that's the promise that these tribulation saints are all excited about. And they begin to sing. One of the things I want you to learn to do, and I need to learn to do it, is as God gives us victory in our life, as we're singing in our worship service, part of what we're doing is rejoicing in the victories that God has won for us. And here's a model of the kind of thing that they sing in heaven. Look at this song. It says, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. I want to ask you, do you believe that God is great and marvelous in his actions? How many of you believe that? How many of you believe that God is great and marvelous in his actions? Okay? We have marriages that are falling apart. I'll just be flat on honest with you. A lot of you are in trouble about it. Some of you wives are going to be tempted. Man, I'm going to go that route too. Why not? Some of you husbands say, well, I'm tired of this thing. Mary and I have been married for 30 years. Don't you think that there's been times when Mary said, man, I just don't like this Wurtzen guy. And he's failed me. Man, he preaches everyone else. And look what, he, you know, he's, look what he's doing to me. You don't get married for 30 years and not go through some times that are tough. You go through really hard things. You know the question all of us need to ask ourselves? What are my actions going to do as far as the name of Jesus in our society today? And what I want to ask you is, are the actions of our church family, is what's happening in our church family bringing great praise to Jesus? Are we honoring him? Because that's the bottom line that needs to be of all of our life. If we have a great and awesome God, and I want to really communicate to you, as a pastor, teacher, I don't believe that you just invite Jesus into your heart and then everything works out and it's easy. That you never go through tremendous times. And I'm not telling you at all that I don't believe that sin can produce tremendous havoc in your relationships. I also know that sometimes someone can sin and they remain unrepentant in that sinfulness. And so maybe the only way, for example, sometimes the only way to deal with alcoholism, for example, is to really call the person to account. And sometimes that means making some really hard choices and having a redemptive kind of confrontation. And sometimes you even have to bring the law courts into those situations. I'm not making light of the complexity of human existence. Man, listen, I've been pastoring for 27 years. I've heard just about everything you can hear on what messes people up and what dissolves them. But I want all of you to ask yourself, do you believe that God is great and awesome? We need to ask God, God, we want to see your awesome and majestic power working in situations. We want to be able to have gatherings where we have people that have struggled, people that have, that have gone to the pits of despair, people to face the agony of sin, and yet the great and awesome God has touched their life. And there's been radical change. There's been radical differences that have been made in their lives, and they're now moving towards togetherness. That's what we need to pray. This tribulation saints are facing stuff that's even more perilous than what we're facing. And if they're going to be able to handle it, then we can handle it today. We need to ask ourselves, do my lives sing a song where I express the greatness and the marvelous power of God's deeds? I'm praying in many situations that some of these broken relationships, they come before you and they say, Jesus has redeemed me and changed me, created new love in my heart when there was nothing but deadness, produced joy and peace when there was nothing but hostility and anger. When I ask you a church family, do you think Jesus can do that? 
then we're going to pray. And we're not just going to follow the course of the world. Because Jesus' name is being shamed. And I want to ask you, if I was an unbeliever, if I was an unbeliever, what would I say? I'd tell you what I'd say. Man, I've got a better percentage with marriages. I'm at a total unbeliever. Living just for materialistic things. Why not just forget this Jesus thing? He doesn't have any power. And just when you say, Dave, why do you feel like that? Because that's part of what I feel like humanly. That's what happens. That's what sin does. Sin is deadly. Sin is a deadly thing. When I ask you a question, like some of, our, some of you know, some of you as moms and dads, your heart is breaking today because your kids aren't awed by the tragedy of evil. They just play with evil. They, just, they think it's exciting. And some of you as moms and dads have just tried everything you can think of and you're scared to death that some of the wages of sin is going to be poured out upon some of your rebellious kids. And as moms and dads, together with them, we need to ask for God's great and awesome deeds to be done. For him to touch life, for him to change lives. We need to believe that his grace can break through. We need to go through these experiences together. I have teenagers that are really living for the Lord. They come to me and say, man, I'm not even sure Jesus can do it. It's all just a farce. I try to live for Jesus, and half of my friends are just goofing off about it. That's part of this incredible warfare that we're in. That's what Revelation is talking about. That's the way it is now, and we're just seeing the beginning of an influence of that Antichrist spirit. I've got news for you. You've got to decide which side of the track you're going to be on. You're going to be on Antichrist track, or you're going to be on Jesus' track. And I want us to be a healing community. Life can be very difficult, it can be hard, but I also want you to be a community that believes God can work. You believe God can heal, that he can bring new life and new joy and new commitments. It says, great and marvelous are your deeds. He says, just and true of your ways, O king of the ages. The idea there, justice, means that one day every single situation on planet Earth is going to be filled with justice. It's going to be right. It's going to conform to God's standards. The idea of it's true, we're eventually going to find out that everything that God recorded in his word is really the way it is. It's really, really true. And what, what this, this group is singing, they're now in heaven, they now see, man, God came through for us. He met the need. It was true. And they bring praise to his name because of that. He says, who will not reverence you? Verse 4, who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed to all. What is it saying here? It's saying that one day, every single person that you meet is going to be face to face with the incredible power of God, and they're going to have to admit he was an awesome, he was a powerful God. What we need to do in our own lives now is before God reveals himself and all of his righteous power, God's asking us now to respond to him in love. You know, this idea of awesomeness and fear is, is, is an emotion you have in your heart. I had this emotion when Monday I went out to eat lunch with uh, Wallace and Carol out at North Texas. And Wallace has been telling me for, for months now about this tire thing they have where they burn two tires at a time. 
And they have these great big kilns that are rotating slowly. And the temperature cranks up about 2,000 degrees in there. And, and Wally was telling me how they were putting these tires on the belt so that we don't have them burning up down here beside 67. Instead, we have them totally taken care of. And he's telling me about all this mechanics that he designed and worked with other guys. And, and how they eventually were getting this thing of burning these two tires. And he takes me way up to the top of the plant. Way up on these catwalks. And you're way up there, you know, several feet in the air, and right on top of the kiln. And the thing that amazed me about the kiln is how in the world do you dump those tires in without dumping all the cement you're trying to produce out on the floor? And he showed me that there was a long tube that went down in there. And you could have watched these tires. They'd come up the conveyor belt, slide down two at a time, and then the conveyor would rotate, and it would drop these two tires. And as you look down into that hole, it's 2,000 degrees. In about 30 seconds, the tire is completely gone. Now, I've got a terrible thing to confess to you. There's a part of me, I've told some of you this before. When I'm in situations like this, what I start to think of, man, what would it be like to jump? (laughs) Whenever I'm really up high, I've got this tremendous, maybe that's why I like to downhill ski so badly, because then I can legitimately jump and I'm all right. But heights pull me. I want to jump in the heights. So as I'm standing up there with Wally, I look down into this thing. So I start to think, what it would be like to jump? Right into that kiln. And some of you are cringing. Say, man, we knew he was cracking up. We needed, we needed to get some serious counsel. I got news for you. I did not jump. You say, why didn't you jump? Because I have a very honest, righteous fear. I, in fact, grab the bars of the railing tighter Because I have this horror. I know if a tire is consumed in 30 seconds, how many seconds would it be for me to be consumed? And so the Lord has given me a very productive, protecting fear when I'm in situations like that. And I'm not going to ever jump because I know the craziness, the insanity. One jump and it's all over. What the book of Revelation is telling us is that you need to realize that that little piddly fire burning in that kiln is nothing compared to the lake of fire. And it's not that God is mean. It's not that he's vindictive. But it's because he's very righteous. He's very holy. Sin really is deadly. It's a virus that will infect everything and destroy everything. And you can't monkey around with that. And you can make decisions in life where you jump where you jump, and there's going to be tremendous consequences that come. Now, God's grace, today we're living in a day of grace, and he says, confess your sins, and I'll forgive you for anything you've ever done. I teach grace. I want you to bury me with grace. I want you to say, man, what David told us was grace. But none of you are going to understand grace if you don't understand the amazing power and reverence and awesomeness of God. And what these saints realized was is that God one day was going to call all the nations to realize how great and how powerful he was. And all those that had turned to the Son of God, you see, God doesn't want anyone to be incinerated in a kiln, a hellish kiln forever and ever. What God wants is for people to be his children in heaven, enjoying this bliss of heaven forever and ever. It says all nations will come and worship him. That's God's heart today. That's what he wants us to be about. He doesn't want people to face the lake of fire. He wants all nations to come willingly of their own desire to respond to his grace revealed in the Holy Spirit and revealed in his Son and to come to him. But John also tells us 
that irrespective, one day, every knee will be forced to bow. You either bow willingly, you either respond to his grace and his love, or you're going to be forced by sheer awesome power. A power that makes the power of a kiln, a cement kiln, look like nothing. And want to understand that that's what it means by the awesomeness of God. That God dwells in unapproachable light. That he's totally holy. He's totally just. You can't mess with him. That's what he's communicating here. It says, after this, I looked into the heavens and the temple, the, the tabernacle, the testimony was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean and shining linen. They wore golden satchels around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. What we have is very similar. Chapter 4, we met the four living creatures who are these incredible archangels that are right at the round the throne of God and they, they represent all of the different creation, all of God's universe. And these archangels now bring the vials, bring these bowls to the seven angels and the angels go forth and in chapter 16 we'll see how these seven angels pour out these bowls upon planet earth and that's going to bring about the end of Antichrist's kingdom, the end of all the opposition and Jesus the great king will come back. You say, Dave, what's this idea of nobody can enter? What does it mean that nobody can enter? What it means is, this is final. One of the things that we never believe as Americans, it's, it, we believe it's never too late. We think you can just always, always do it again. And I want you to know that that's just not the way life works. The way real life is, your decisions are really, really important. You can make a decision as a young person. I talked to somebody at a lunch meeting this week, and they said, this was a beautiful girl. She was an incredible, she had such tremendous potential. And I just saw her, and I visited her, and her brain is half gone, completely wasted. And their response was, they began to cry saying, I just can't believe they wasted their life. They made a stupid decision. They took drugs at the wrong time. And now their life will never be the same again. See, it's one of the things that, that hardly anybody ever tells us. But the nature of life is that you can make decisions where it becomes too late. What John is describing here is that the Antichrist opposition, remember all the way through this book so far, I've been telling you the Antichrist opposition, Jesus is trying to reach him. Jesus keeps sending. He sent 144,000 Jewish apostle Paul. You can't have more love than that. I mean, you talk about trying to get a hearing. You talk about trying to get people to listen. 144,000 anointed evangelists like Apostle Paul reaching out to the world and thousands, millions, I believe, are going to respond. But I also want you to know the other side of the coin. Here, it's too late. We're going to find when we get into chapter 16 that all the people do is when God pours out his judgment upon them, they just get angrier and angrier and angrier. It says they would not repent. They curse the God who is bringing the suffering, bringing the hail, bringing the blood, bringing all these horrible things. And John is introducing this idea by saying, the court of heaven is now filled with smoke. Nobody can go in. And what he means by that is the king has spoken. The king has said, that's it. It's now time for my justice to break forth. In the real, your real life relationship with God, there can come a time where, for example, in our present life, you hear God's voice. God is talking to you. And God is moving you to make certain decisions. 
Don't take for granted that that voice will just keep on talking. Because it won't. God will talk to you. But there can come a time, even in your life as a believer, where he stops talking to you, and he says, just like he does in 1 Corinthians, you've rebelled against me, you've hurt my cause, I'm just going to take you home to glory. Because as a believer, you'll never lose your eternal life, but boy, you can lose your physical life. And I've got, that's not God's, God's vindictiveness, it's not the fact that he's an angry God, it's just the fact that he is a holy God, a just daddy. He doesn't tolerate his kids forever doing things that destroy his name and hurt his cause. In fact, one of the marks if you're really a, a, a truly believer, if you're living in a heart and unrepentant sin, God works really hard to shake you. And if you don't respond, he'll deal with your life. And 1 Corinthians describes cases where believers were taken home to glory early because they took for granted the awesomeness and the reverence of God. I also want to share with you, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you feel this hardness developing inside of you, if you feel this, 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 this hostility towards God, you feel you know, cursing him, and, and you don't feel any restraint on you, today's the day to open your heart to Jesus. I want you to understand, it's not God's will for the smoke to fill heaven, for there to be no other appeal, and that's the end. That's not what God really, in his heart, wants. Because that's why he's giving you time. Now is the time to respond to the cross, the port, to respond to the place where all this wrath of God, all the hostility against sin was poured out upon his son in this incredible gift of grace. That's why it was dark. That's why Jesus called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because all the cruddy things that you and I have ever done or ever will do were sucked into Jesus and he paid the price and God poured out his holy justice against his son. He did that because he loved you. And all he asked you to do is say, I accept that. Oh, Jesus, thank you that you died for me. Don't miss that. You can receive Jesus Christ anytime you want to. There's no reason to face this finality of God's wrath. There's no reason to have the seven bowls poured out against you of hopelessness. Instead, now is the day. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I would pray that you would help us to not write no fear over our life with you. We look forward by faith to the wonderful acts of forgiveness and redemption that you're going to give. And we know that you can do justice to your name and honor to your name, and that's what we want you to do. And Father, we'd ask you for any friend hearing about this ultimate time of judgment, the finality, the completion as you pour out your wrath against those that rebelled against you. We pray that they'll hear that Jesus died for them. Right where you're sitting, will you admit Jesus died for me? And I accept that gift. Jesus rose again for me. He wants to give me a new life, a new power. I want him to come and live inside of me and make me his child. If you, in the depth of your heart, say, Lord Jesus, save me now. I want you to come and live in my life. I want you to give me a new nature. I want you to to make me your child. I want to receive you. God's holy word promises that in a split second of time when you honestly make that request to Jesus, that he comes up and takes up a boat in your life and he'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you, and you'll never face those seven final bowls of God's wrath. Instead, you'll face the completion of his love forever and ever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.